0: Welcome to Safari Revisited! Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals. Through there, people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome to a special episode of the Raw Safari podcast. So, uh, no new content today, friends. So, if you've listened to them all, you might have heard this one before. But um, it has come to my attention lately that uh, a lot of new fans and a lot of new listeners. Don't go back into the archives too much and don't check out a lot of the old content. And, um, you know, I get it. You're missing out on a lot of good stuff, but there are also a lot of episodes. So every once in a while, I'm going to bring you a old episode that is relevant to what is going on in the world right now, and um, that way you can listen to it. Or not. Your call. I'm not the boss of you. Am I? I should be your boss. Maybe I'll start a new podcast where I just boss you around. No, that's weird. This is weird. This has gone off the rails already. I apologize for that. But hey, it's a bonus episode. I can be extra weird. (laughs) Anyway, so um, the reason I'm putting this out there is that this week is Walrus Awareness Week. Yay! And um, being aware of walruses is really cool. Also, if you're caught up on Zoo News, you know that I frequently say Walrus Awareness Week when I'm trying to say Walrus Awareness Week. So I thought if I did an episode where I say Walrus Awareness Week a bunch of times then I would not only get to put out content for Walrus Awareness Week, but also I would break the habit of not properly saying Walrus Awareness Week. Walrus Awareness Week. Yay! So anyway, y'all, this is a replay of my interview with Erica Allen at the Indianapolis Zoo, where I first met her and her walruses that she takes care of. I'm guessing you guessed that from the sheer number of times that I said Walrus Awareness Week. Um, And, oh man, I gotta tell you In the last year and a half I have met so many amazing, unique, incredible species So many animals that I never thought I'd get to have an experience with Without a doubt, one of the moments that stands out the most Is when I got to meet and interact with Ginger and Aku The uh, walruses at the Indianapolis Zoo This this one blew my mind, y'all And, um, and you'll get to hear about them and, and learn from Erica and also, um, hear me interacting with them and you'll get to hear from them, which is so cool. And I just, I love, 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 love sharing this. So, um, if you've listened, I don't know, this is one of my favorites. You might want to listen again. And if you haven't, then, uh, then you're going to get to enjoy a bonus, uh, bonus episode here. So, um. You know, all the normal stuff applies. Make sure you're following along. Hit subscribe. Make sure you're uh, hitting us up on social media at Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Rossafari Pod on TikTok. You can support the pod by going to patreon.com slash Rossafari. And um, there's also Rossafari.com for all of your podcast website related needs. Uh, so here's an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end, ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. All right, and now I'm going to take you back in time a little bit to the Indianapolis Zoo when I met one of the genuinely most impressive and authentic humans I've ever gotten to meet through this podcast. Erica literally takes the show over, and um, she's welcome, too. It's amazing. I cannot wait for you all to hear this. Here is uh, my interview with Erica Allen of the Indianapolis Zoo for Walrus Awareness Week. (laughs) So, Erica, tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here.
1: Uh, hi, John. Um, yes, so I'm Erica Allen. I'm a senior marine mammal trainer, and we are at the Indianapolis Zoo, where I work with our dolphins, walrus, sea lions, and gray seals.
0: Amazing. So, um, all of those animals are incredible, but you said walrus, and that is not a real common zoo animal, is it?
1: No, it's not. Um, There's actually only four facilities in the United States right now that are currently housing walrus, and there's only 14 individual animals.
0: That's amazing. How many do you guys have here?
1: We have two. I consider us really, really lucky that we get to be one of the four facilities that house walrus and that I get to be able to care for two of them. I've actually cared for four total in my career, uh, but we have a couple of really great ones right now.
0: That is so amazing. I love that so much. Um, and we will come back to them. But first, the animal that I'm most interested in right now is you. So um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about yourself. What made you want to become a keeper?
1: Yeah, I've, um, I've worked with animals a lot throughout my life. Um, I worked in vet clinics and things like that. I actually was um, a tech at an equine vet clinic through college And that kind of led me a little bit into the zoo field. I got a seasonal position at the Milwaukee County Zoo, uh, which is my hometown. And I worked there also as I was finishing college. And I ended up getting a degree in education. So um, I really enjoy teaching people and talking to people. And I really enjoy animals. So I wanted to find a way to kind of marry those two things. And I know that in the field of marine mammals, there's a lot of opportunities for the caretakers of the animals to also engage with the public. Uh, There tends to be a lot more interactive type scenarios with marine mammals that would get me really hands on with the public also. So after I graduated from college, I did an internship at um, Dolphin Quest in Hawaii.
0: In Hawaii.
1: In Hawaii, yeah. That's
0: amazing. Yeah, it
1: was an incredible experience. Um, I got to work with some Atlantic bottlenose dolphins there, and that was my first kind of foray into marine mammals, and I loved it. And really, as part of the internship, they expect you to be engaging with the public. So I felt like I really kind of hit my sweet spot and that this is what I was meant to do. So um, after that internship was over, I was really lucky to get another internship at the Indianapolis Zoo. And that kind of expanded my marine mammal experience from dolphins into also pinnipeds. Um, And at the time, we also had polar bear in the department. So I got some carnivore experience there, too. And, um, you know, one thing kind of led to another. I was really fortunate to get a part-time job following that internship, moved into a full-time job. And I've been here and loving it ever since.
0: That is just amazing. I love that. Um, since you're so passionate about education, let me ask you, um, I know that there are some people who think that, um, you know, marine mammal education is a little bit controversial. Uh, how do you feel about that?
1: I think our stance on that here at the zoo is that we really look to push any kind of conservation message that we can and getting our local communities involved and learning about our animals. We have an incredible education department here at the zoo. We do lots of camps, all kinds of different programs throughout the year, and it's getting people that might not have otherwise had the opportunity to learn anything about these animals. Not just a chance to learn about them, but to see them and to see it for themselves and to really be inspired and create that connection with an animal that is so special. It's something you can't get from a book. Um, So that's really a huge part of our mission is to connect and inspire with people. Um, But also we provide a home for a lot of rescued animals, including a lot of our marine mammals. Uh, we're rescues, so I think we're doing a lot of really important work there, as well as the research and everything we can learn from them.
0: That's amazing! I love it. Very cool. So, um, all right, I, I, we have to we have to go back to the walruses because this is this is why I am here. I mean, like I said, also you, but mostly mostly the walruses. <laughs> so, tell me everything about your walruses.
1: Everything. I don't even know where to begin. Um, walruses are incredible, incredible animals, and There's not really a lot of mention of walrus in, like, pop culture. Like, I think people just don't even know what to think of when they hear walrus. Um, There's, you know, I am the walrus by the Beatles or um, the Lewis Carroll poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter. And that's pretty much it. And people don't know anything beyond that. Um, But what I can tell you about walrus is that they are just exceptional, exceptional animals. Getting a chance to work closely with them... um, I feel really lucky. But they are from the pinniped um, order. So that includes seals and sea lions. And they all do have a lot of things in common. But then um, the walrus is actually kind of its own kind of separation from that. And their Latin binomial is Odobenus rosmaris, which means tooth-walking (laughs) seahorse.
0: That's amazing. And how long did you have to practice uh, to be ready for that? Uh,
1: oh, oh, no. It's just something that, that we all know. Sure, sure. We sure, can sure, all sure. recite pretty much all of our animals, uh, Latin genus and species right away. But um, but I think that, that that pretty accurately sums up everyone's knowledge of a walrus. <laughs> yes, sure, sure. Yes. They're a tooth-walking seahorse. <laughs> but, um, but I think when people think of walrus, they immediately think of a couple of things. They think of their tusks probably being one of their most prominent features. Um, They might also think of their whiskers. And they're also going to think of their size. They're pretty big animals. Um, They are marine mammals, so they spend a lot of their time in the water. Uh, Walrus are only found in the Arctic, They are not found in the Antarctic. So if you ever see a picture of a walrus and a penguin together, (laughs) that is wrong. (laughs) Um, People will say the same thing of polar bears. Yes. Polar bears and penguins are also not found in the same place. Um, So they are found in the Arctic. There are um, two, debatably three, subspecies of the walrus. There's the Pacific and the Atlantic. Um, Of course, they're all just living up in the Arctic Circle there off the Pacific or Atlantic Ocean. And then there is um, the Laptev Sea, which is by Russia off the Pacific. There is also a type of walrus that lives there. And it's debatable whether that's its own subspecies or whether that's considered part of the Pacific walrus. Um, They do have some morphological differences, the two subspecies. So the Pacific walrus are going to be bigger. They have longer tusks. They have a wider skull Then their um, Atlantic cousins, they also have a divergence in mitochondrial DNA. So they are technically considered two um, different subspecies. Um, Here at the zoo, we have the Pacific walrus. So I I know the most about them because that's what I work with. Um, But I guess just to kind of get more in-depth in some of their traits, um, some of the things we do know about them, um, when we're talking about something like their tusks, um, one thing that a lot of people are surprised by is that both the males and the females have tusks, um, and they are essentially just overgrown canine teeth.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, they um, they do have other teeth in their mouth. They're smaller. Uh, most of them usually have around 18 teeth total, but they can have up to 30 or so teeth. And those other teeth don't really serve a whole lot of purpose. Um, Their tusks serve a huge purpose. The tooth walking part of their name comes from using their tusks to haul out onto ice flows. They spend a lot of their time either swimming or hauling out onto ice flows. Occasionally, you will see them hauling out onto land, but that's usually when there aren't any ice flows available. So they prefer to spend their time up on the ice, and they'll use those tusks to haul their giant bodies up onto the
0: ice. (laughs) I cannot picture that.
1: So yeah, that's they insane. they do serve a pretty important purpose there. They also will use their tusks in sparring with others, typically males fighting over territory or defending their breeding space, um, perhaps fighting with another male over a female. Um, so that's pretty much the main purpose of their tusks. And um, they don't really use any of their teeth for like stabbing or chewing or any kind of eating function because they swallow all their food whole. Um, so that's kind of where their whiskers come in. Is there? It's a major uh, tactile function on their face. So the walrus has anywhere from four to seven hundred whiskers. We call them vibrissae on the front of their face in thirteen to fifteen rows. So um, each one is attached to a muscle and has its own blood supply and nerve endings. Oh
0: wow! So okay. it's
1: like imagine having hundreds of fingers on the front right, of your face. That's amazing. Yeah. So they're extremely tactile and sensory and located right up near their mouth. So that's going to enable them to be able to find their food and help direct it to their mouth. So what they're mainly going to be eating in the wild is a lot of sedentary bottom-dwelling type of benthic creatures. So mollusks, um, a lot of bivalves, things like clams, is going to make up the majority of their diet, but also worms, sea cucumbers, gastropods, all that fun stuff that lives sure, down sure. on the ocean floor. <laughs> um, so they're going to dive down. They're going to feed um, usually in between like 30 and 100 feet of water. They can dive down to two or 300 feet if they need to. And they're going to use all those fingers or vibra-say on the front of their face to kind of sift through the sediment and search for their food. Uh, once they found it, they actually have this incredible suction and they can just suck it straight into their mouth and something like a clam that lives in a shell, they can actually suck the meat right out of the shell.
0: Oh my gosh. They
1: don't eat the shell part. They leave it really? behind. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And um, they'll typically feed one to two times a day and a large adult can eat three to 6,000 clams in a feeding. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty wow. big. So they have to eat a lot in order to maintain that weight.
0: Okay, so y'all, I'm going to jump in here for a second and tell you that Erica was nice enough to let me meet her walruses, and I got to feed them, and um, this suction thing cannot be explained easily. It's like a vacuum cleaner. You literally, like, I held a fish out, and uh, they start sucking before it's there, and you can feel it. You can actually feel the suction, and then the second the head of the fish gets near, it's just gone just completely gone. And it's um, I have fed a lot of animals and that might've been the most unique feeding experience I've ever had. That was really cool.
1: It is really cool. What's really cool about it is that it works both ways too. So they suck in, but they can also use it as kind of a hunting mechanism by taking a mouthful of water and blasting it out. So they can direct a jet of water to kind of help clear and move sediment to also help them find like a burrowing clam.
0: Oh, this is so cool. Walruses are so cool. I'm so excited. I, I, I just knew they were big pinnipeds. I purposely came in here pretty uneducated about walruses, um, because I wanted you you to inform me. And um Wow, this is amazing. Very cool. So let's take a minute and talk about the uh the the whiskers. Um they they feel unlike what you're thinking. Because when you think whiskers, you're thinking almost like a a mustache or like a cat's whiskers. But go ahead and describe these little like face fingers.
1: Yeah. So they're actually quite thick, each individual whisker, and they feel kind of like plastic. Um, They're like a bunch of little plastic tubes on the front of their face. Um, However, they are not hollow. But yeah, they're really, really unique and... Like I said, they're super tactile, and they're very curious by nature, just gregarious, curious animals. So they're using their whiskers to kind of explore everything. If there's a little piece of something on the ground, they're going to be moving it around with their whiskers. If I'm wearing a rain jacket and they haven't seen that in a while, they're going to rub their whiskers on it and feel it, and, and that's really how they explore their environment, and they interact with each other by touching with whiskers as well. So, yeah, it's just kind of a, a cool sensory function that um, – Works similar to other animals that have whiskers, like cats, um, but kind of has been really specially adapted for its own function as well for feeding.
0: Yeah, they're really I, – I, I asked if they were fake when I got to touch them. I knew they weren't, but literally it felt like Erica had stuck some plastic on the front of her walrus. That's what it felt like. Um, mm-hmm. Very unique animal. Very unique. Uh, very cool. So um, talk to me about vocalizations.
1: Yeah. They, um, they're really vocal animals, um, probably the most of any pinniped species. Uh, we hear our walrus here at the zoo making sounds all the time on their own, just a bunch of random sounds, and we've been able to train them to do some of those sounds like on cue for us. Um, we don't know for sure what a lot of their sounds mean so there's still a lot of ongoing research into that um but we we do have ideas about what some of it means and a lot of it is um for communication specifically for attracting a mate um so right now both of our walrus do a sound that we call a roar and it's just kind of a loud grunting growling kind of a sound and oftentimes they'll do that on their own if they're startled by something um Or if they're scared of something or if they're maybe kind of playing really rough and tumble with each other. Um, And that's a pretty common... I think when people think of what sound does a walrus make, that's probably what they're envisioning is that sound. Um, We also have heard them exhibit... And our current walrus don't do this yet. But our previous walrus um, did a whistle, which is exactly what it sounds like. They purse their lips and they blow air through it. And it's a very, very high pitch whistling sound. And that usually is one of the sounds that we see, like, during the breeding season or when they're trying to attract a female. Um, They can make, like, knocking-type sounds in their throat. Um, Different, like, we call it a raspberry, like, sounds that they make by blowing through their lips. Um, They also can make what's called a bell tone. And this is not actually coming from their vocal cords. Um, it's by air kind of near their pharynx that they can expand. And that's another very common one that we hear for animals that are trying to attract a mate. So, yeah, I mean, they have a huge repertoire of sounds.
0: It's time for... Interrupting. 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 Interrupting, John. Mm. Hey, y'all. First of all, Thank you to my buddy, Taylor Gray, for that amazing new stinger for interrupting John. You're going to be hearing lots more of that, I'm sure. And second of all, when I met the walruses with Erica, she had them do some of her vocal behaviors for me so that y'all could hear them. So here are the walruses. Good
1: boy. Um, He also does a different vocal called a knock. and
0: then he does one that we're calling a raspberry amazing really what more is there to say walruses are awesome okay back to the interview
1: and it's that's probably one of the Favorite things about people that come to visit our walruses, they walk away just going, I didn't even know they could make all those sounds, even just their slurping sounds when they eat their food. Oh, yeah, that was
0: crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that was crazy. No, yeah. Um, and I think my favorite thing that you have said so far is when you said that they don't know that one sound yet. Uh, oh man, I wish y'all could have seen her face because her eyes were so determined. <laughs> they are clearly going to learn how to make that sound and you are clearly going to be the one training them to do that. That was
1: Yes, yeah, we're yeah. very excited about it. Anything that we can train that can demonstrate to our guests a natural behavior that we can use to expand upon and talk about these animals is something that we're really excited to be working on in training.
0: Yeah, I could, I could tell your eyes lit up and I'm assuming you were smiling, although masks, Yeah, but you know, it was, it was a whole demeanor change. It was really hilarious. All right. So let's go away from the, um, the overall walrus thing. Tell me about your walruses. Tell me about who we we were hanging out with. We have
1: two absolutely incredible walrus right now at the zoo. They've actually only been with us for, um, about a year.
0: Okay. So I have to pause for one second. I'm sorry. You, Walrus is plural as well. Is walruses wrong? Because I keep saying walruses.
1: So you can say it two different ways. Okay. You can just say walrus. There's one walrus, so there's two walruses. Um, or you can also say walruses. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so either of those are acceptable. Okay. Walry is not a word.
0: What about walrin? Come on, this is, <laughs> there are a lot of good options here. <laughs> okay, cool. So thank you for clarifying. So anyway, yeah. you had them for one year, and go ahead.
1: Yeah, so um, their names are Ginger and Aku, and um They both came to us from SeaWorld in Orlando. Ginger was actually born there, and um, her dam and sire are still down there. And she was the first successful walrus calf to be born um, to the team in Orlando. So that was really, really exciting. As you can imagine, with only 14 animals in our nationwide population, every single birth is really celebrated, I mean, by everyone in every facility. It's a huge, huge deal. So when Ginger was born, it was a huge celebration by everybody, and the team down there did a fantastic job helping to care for her and helping to raise her, Um, and it was a first-time mother that had given birth down there as well, and she did a fantastic job. So that was really, really exciting, and um, right around that same time that Ginger was born, there was a wild-born walrus calf that had stranded himself, and that was Aku, so he was really only probably a couple of weeks old, somehow managed to get himself up onto the stern of a gold mining barge oh my in Alaska oh, off the coast of Nome. Oh. Um, his name actually means stern of a boat <laughs> in the Inuit language because that's where he was found. Nice. And he was just a little bag of skin and bones. And so, obviously, he needed some intervention. Thankfully, there is a facility in Seward, Alaska, called the Alaska Sea Life Center. And they're really the only marine mammal response facility in the entire state. So, he was quickly sent um, down there where he could be rehabilitated and um, get some weight on him, get him healthy again. And they did an incredible job with him. Um, The whole rescue process went really well. And... Unfortunately for a walrus, even once they've gotten to a healthy point again, there really aren't any options to release them back out into the wild. So to begin with, we didn't know where his family pod was. We didn't know where his mother was. Um, And he would have been still needing to nurse for quite some time. Um, So that poses a huge challenge. And he would not have been able to survive on his own. They're very social animals and they're always in large groups. Um, and walrus tend to be really, uh, easily spooked. So even getting close enough to try to put him with another group would pro- be probably very problematic. So, um, it was determined that he would be better off being raised in one of our facilities. Um, so he was then sent to SeaWorld in Orlando because Ginger was the same age. Right, right. So that was perfect. So they pretty much hit it off immediately. They've been BFFs ever since. They're pretty inseparable. And that ended up working out perfectly. Um, Here at Indianapolis, we do have a past history of taking in rescued orphan walrus calves and raising them up. So when we were kind of looking to shuffle walrus around and look for new homes, I think it was a pretty natural choice that the babies come to Indianapolis. So they were uh, about two and a half when they came. They are about three and a half now. And they are just... Doing fantastic. We love them so much.
0: Amazing. What's the uh, life expectancy for a walrus in captivity?
1: So they can live to be up to 40 years old. Wow. Yeah. So um, obviously we have access to um, incredible health care. We have incredible veterinary teams. They're being fed just top quality food and they've got, you know, personal trainers tending to their every <laughs> need and whim. Um, we, we like to joke a lot that these animals have, you know, they got better health care than I do, and they uh, really have everything going for them, um, experts just tending to their every need. So that obviously helps with something like life expectancy. We have, um, you know, medicines and things that we, can, we have access to that the wild population doesn't. Um, we also can really monitor their environments really closely here. So, we're looking at a lot of problems for wild walrus, mostly as it relates to climate change. Right,
0: right.
1: So, they're losing a lot of that sea ice that they really rely upon. They're having to haul out on land more. And when they hunt off of the sea ice, it's a moving platform. So, every time they go hunt, they're in a new location with lots of food. When they have to haul out on land, you have hundreds, maybe thousands of walrus all competing over the same food source. And so, that can deplete the food. Um, it makes them more vulnerable to things like maybe polar bears in the area or human activity in the area. Um, so there are a lot of challenges that they face in the wild, things that we can control for in our environments here. So I think that's another reason why they tend to live long, happy
0: lives. That's amazing. I love it. So male, female, uh, gonna gonna play any uh, seductive music and, and see if any babies uh, decide to come on out. <laughs>
1: Well, with Ginger and Aku, they're still quite too young. Okay. um, At only being around three and a half. Um, So the females are going to reach their sexual maturity between five and seven, and the males between seven and ten. However, we don't usually see a lot of breeding um, for females until they're closer to ten, and males until they're closer to 15. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Yes.
1: So um, it could be quite some time (laughs) for these two. Um, But the hope is definitely that within our, our overall population of 14 walrus that we do set them up to give them the best opportunities for breeding. So previously we had a female here at Indianapolis that was a breeding age and she was being housed with a male that was not a breeding age. So that's why we went ahead last year and moved animals around, give her the opportunity to be with a male that was a breeding age who was a proven breeder and, um, and then we were able to take the little kids and kind of raise them up and be a, a good holding and training facility for them until they become of age as well.
0: Very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, is it with such a small population, is there like an SSP and a stud book? Um, or do you not even have to worry about that? Cause y'all just know what's going on.
1: There is a stud book okay. for walrus. Actually, uh, my coworker, uh, here at the zoo is a stud book keeper oh, for nice. walrus. Very cool. So, um, so we have, um, you know, a lot of resources, talk to each other and, you know, talk about our training and talk about our our opportunities that we're going to be giving our animals. Um, We actually also have um, the Walrus Conservation Consortium, which is a group of individuals from all facilities that hold walrus, as well as some facilities that don't currently hold walrus, but maybe will in the future or have the capability to. And um, that group meets, has been meeting Pretty much annually for the last several years, I've actually been lucky enough to go to Alaska twice, two years to meet with that group. And that was just a really incredible experience to just be surrounded by people who love walrus and talk about, you know, everything and anything we can possibly do to help sustain their wild populations as well as our collection here.
0: Awesome. Um, Anything else you want to say about the walruses before we move on to some other animals?
1: Hmm, I could talk about walrus for how many hours you got. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, I guess nothing in particular, but I just know that anytime we have a guest come to meet our walrus up close, it is my personal goal that they walk away from the experience saying, walrus is my new favorite animal. Um, And I know everyone is obviously partial to the species that they work with, um, but they really have just captivated me and they are just so incredibly smart and so much personality, more personality than one being should be able to have. Um, They make me laugh every single day. They are just really, really incredible animals. So anyone wants a chance to come and learn about them and have them be your new favorite animal, you know who to call.
0: (laughs) I love it. So um, you said that walruses are pinnipeds. And um, for people that don't know, what is a pinniped?
1: So pinnipeds are an order of animals that have very similar characteristics. They're all marine mammals, and they all have evolved from land mammals. So with all marine mammals, they they have evolved from land mammals. But with pinnipeds in particular, um, they're also sometimes subgrouped um, under carnivore. So, they have kind of evolved from animals like bears and dogs. And they, a uh, pinniped basically means fin footed. So, it's kind of describing the shape of their flippers. And they all do have very similar kind of flippers. But what's really unique um, and interesting is that they all kind of have very different locomotion or how they use those flippers. So a sea lion, for example, we'll take a California sea lion because that's what I work with here at the zoo. Um, They're extremely mobile on land. They're excellent climbers. They can spin around and they can do a lot of this because they um, can actually rotate their hip and bring their back flippers underneath their body, enabling them to walk on all fours. Now, the walrus has the same ability. So, people think of walrus as just being, like, huge and blubbery and slow-moving. They can be fast.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. They can be
1: very fast. They can run as fast as a human on land for short distances.
0: Oh, I, I want to see that. It's
1: amazing. <laughs> um, and that's because they also can rotate their hips and bring those flippers underneath their body and kind of walk like they're moving on all fours. Seals, however don't have that ability, so they pretty much are just blubbering along on their bellies, and that's how they're moving on land. Um, When it comes to swimming, again, they all move pretty differently from one another. So the, the California sea lion is going to use its bigger front flippers to propel itself through the water and swim and use those back flippers like a rudder to steer. And the walrus and the seal actually have this in common with how they swim, they use those back flippers and kind of what we call a sculling motion back and forth to propel themselves and their front flippers to steer. So walrus kind of has something in common with the sea lion and something in common with the seal when it comes to how they move, depending on whether it's in the land or the water. Um, and then there's also smaller subgroupings like eared seals or earless seals. Um, so the California sea lions have small little ears and the walrus and the seals just have little holes behind their eyes, so no external ear flaps. And that's usually what we use when we're talking to the public about how can you tell the difference between a seal and a sea lion. We're going to look at the shape and size of their flippers. We're going to look at their overall body size, and we're going to look for ears.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So uh, tell me, tell me about some of your uh, California sea lions here.
1: So we have, um, we actually have a pretty new group of sea lions, relatively new to us. Um, And there are four of them. And they came to us also from SeaWorld Orlando. They came at the same time that Aku and Ginger came up last year. And what's funny is they usually have a lot of sea lions born every year. And they tend to theme what their names are. Okay. So, uh, you know, they might have a Harry Potter theme one year or a Marvel theme one year. So the ones that came to us, it happened to be a cheese theme. They're all named after cheeses. Um, our older male Gordo that we got from them is not necessarily named after cheese. I'm not sure what the theme was that year. You but said then it's the- Gordo?
0: Gordo. Maybe it's from eating too much cheese? Hispanic.
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but the three females were all born the same year. Uh, so we have Pepper Jack, Colby, and Baby Bill.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah, the cutest cheese names. Yeah,
1: or, they're all pretty well, precious, yeah. and we're really we're falling for them pretty hard. Um, but then they they came to us last year, and they joined our our family of three sea lions that we had already had, and um, they were actually all rescued animals. The three that we had initially had. So um, we have Holly, Joy, and Ivy. Um, Holly and Ivy were both um, had been rescued multiple times, and usually after a sea lion strands two to three times, it's determined that it's not in their best interest to release them again, because they're just going to keep stranding over and over for various reasons. So that was the case with them. With Joy, she actually was born in a rescue facility. So her mom had stranded with uh, what's called domoic acid toxicity or domoic acid poisoning, which is becoming more and more common for sea lions on the California coast. It's caused by a red tide or an algal bloom. So we get an increase of that toxin that works its way up the food chain into the sea lions, and it's a neurotoxin. So it's really, really detrimental for them. So her mom was struggling with that, and then she was born in the facility, so she had to be hand-raised for an animal that's hand-raised. Again, releasing is not a great option. Sure, sure. So so she was sent to us as well. Um, And all of those sea lions are joined by two gray seals that were born um, at Brookfield Zoo. Oh, nice. Yeah, and they're actually brothers, and their names are Ziggy and Scooter.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Um, How smart are all of these pinnipeds?
1: Insanely smart. They're really, really intelligent. Um, They're really good at picking up on cues in their environment and cues from their trainers, even when it's something that we're not trying to do intentionally. So we have to be really careful that everything we're doing around them is very intentional, has a purpose, has a reason, um, so that we're shaping the right kind of behaviors that we want. Sure. Um, So they do pick up on things just crazy fast, uh, which can work for you or against you. But... um, it's really important for us to work on a lot of basic husbandry things. So we want them to be able to move from one space to another. We want them to be able to move away from other animals and towards other animals. Um, and once they have those kind of basics down sitting nicely and calmly eating well from us, those sorts of things, then we'll move on to medical behaviors. So that's been a huge priority for us right now, especially with the walrus because they're going to get to be really big and, um, we want to make sure that they're comfortable and cooperative when it comes to their own health care. So from basic things like checking out their eyes, their ears, their nose, their mouth, all the way up to more advanced things like being able to take x-rays, ultrasound them, collect blood, things like that. We want it all to be done just very stress-free and voluntarily. So that's going to be what we spend a lot of our time working on. And um, what really helps that to be successful is having a great relationship with them. So we're with them all the time, multiple sessions a day, just working on keeping things positive, having a great relationship so that there is a level of trust established.
0: Makes sense. And um, speaking of walruses, we're going right back to it because, yeah, now that I've met them, I'm in love. You're absolutely right. Um, speaking of the, the health stuff, how big are they now and how big do you expect them to get?
1: So, right now, they're still, I still call them babies.
0: (laughs) Um, That's some big babies.
1: Yeah, they're pretty big. Um, (laughs) They're usually around 100, 150 pounds at birth. So, that's a really big baby. Wow. Um, But they gain weight really quickly, usually a few pounds a day. and now at three and a half, um, ginger is over 800 pounds and Aku is over 900
0: pounds. You know, I'm not going to lie. They wear it well. I did not think they were that big. Like,
1: yeah, they wear it right well, don't yeah, say, they? Yeah, they really do. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> Very cool. And yeah. how big will they get? Or, I mean, I know you don't know these specifics, but you know, how big do walruses get?
1: Yeah, so the the males, so they're sexually dimorphic. So the males are going to be bigger than the females um, at their their full grown size. Um, so males usually will get to be between three to four thousand pounds and the females between one to two and a half thousand pounds.
0: Y'all, my eyes just got so big. Wow. That's
1: to see like a full grown adult male is incredibly impressive, especially considering their tusks can get to be up to three feet long and really wide and thick, like it's really, really impressive. They have massive skulls, huge thick necks that are specifically built for sparring with other males. So it's it's crazy. We think Aku is already like he's a big boy. He's big boned. I think he's gonna be on the the bigger side of that that range.
0: Wow. And um despite that fact, they are free contact. Yes. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So that's and you don't uh, feel
0: intimidated with them at all, do you?
1: Uh, no. However, we respect that. Of
0: course. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, Yeah,
1: we do have a lot of safety protocols when we work with the walrus. So, um, how we do it at Indianapolis is whenever we're going to enter their space, we start with them at a distance. So we start pretty much every session by sending them away to the water and then we go out onto their space and we call them up to us. They have like an assigned seating order so they, (laughs) they know where they need to be sitting to start a session and, um... And it's, it's something that, you know, we take pride in our ability to work very closely with them. And it's something that we work really hard on all the time. So focusing on those little manners and that personal bubble and things like that are really important, like I said, because they're going to get to be really, really big. So we want to have that established when they're little right? Um, and maintain that. But we also have rules like we never walk between the walrus and the water. So I mentioned before they get really easily spooked and their immediate reaction is go to the water. Mm -hmm. They feel safest in the water. Um, They can maneuver better in the water. So that's where they want to be if they feel like there's any threat. So if I happen to be walking between them and the water and something spooked them, I'm a a pancake. Like there's, I have no, no chance. Like they're just going to go and it doesn't matter who's in their way and there's nothing I can do to stop them. So we've made that a safety rule that just, we're very careful about how we move around them. Um, We also have staff here that have worked with walrus for many, many years. So we understand their behavior. We know what their potential precursors are. We can read that behavior really well. um, And we have a really good training program for, for new staff as well, to make sure that everyone is completely comfortable and aware and making smart decisions when working with them.
0: Makes sense. And uh, tell me about Aku's uh, tusk.
1: About his tusk? Yeah. Yeah. So um, some of the ways we can tell our two walrus apart right now is, uh, one of them is by looking at their tusks. So Ginger's tusks are actually quite a bit longer than Aku's. Um, They are about, I want to say, maybe around 10 or 11 centimeters right now. And his are maybe only around five or six. So it's pretty noticeable when you see them that hers are longer. Another thing people are going to notice right away is that Aku actually has like a silver colored cap on one of his tusks. The goal is to have a cap on both of his tusks. But right now we only have it on one tusk. And so one behavior that Aku has learned is kind of rubbing his tusks on things. And that can potentially wear down the tusk. It could cause um, a crack, a chip that could potentially lead to an infection. So because that tooth is so massive, it has a really, really deep root. So the root of that tooth goes essentially right up next to the animal's brain. Oh, wow. So an infection in the tooth could really big problem. Right, right. So we go out of our way to make sure we take care of all of their dental needs. And one of those things is putting a cap on the tooth, excuse me, to help protect it. So um, well, all it is essentially is a crown like a person would have placed on their sure. tooth. And um, we've been able to do this through training with both Ginger and Aku. So they're trained to be able to hold still while we take a mold or an impression of their tusk. It usually takes about a minute or so. Um, and then from that, we send it off to a special zoo dentist that helps to create kind of a, a mold of what that tusk looks like. And off of that mold, they can then create the cap. So cap is made of tyconium. It's a really strong metal. It's able to withstand a lot of a lot of wear and tear, like the walrus put on it. Once the cap is done, it comes back to us. And then we use like a special cement type glue and stick it right on. Seriously. Yep.
0: So that's not like, that wasn't some crazy surgery or something. That's just. Nope.
1: It's all done, all done through training. And they. Oh, I'm so impressed. They've been fantastic for it. Yeah. So that's another thing. There's a a few things that we really work on when they're little and that's one of them because it's really important.
0: Wow. You get that y'all, you're like, y'all are amazing. Right? You get that. That's really cool. What an do, amazing
1: team. I do tell people uh, when they're visiting just to try to help them get an idea like, you know, this walrus isn't just doing everything I want just because they're not like a robot. Like, you know, they could leave if they want. They could go do whatever. Um, so a lot of that has to do with the relationship that we've built with them. Um, but also I'll try to compare it to people like, could you take your cat to the vet right now? And would they hold still without anyone holding them down for a shot? Probably not. But with a walrus, that's going to be 4,000 pounds. Holding them down (laughs) is not an option. Now, at 900 pounds, holding them down is not an option. And that's not really the route we'd want to go anyways. We want everything to just be really calm and uh, for them to really be choosing to participate. So... So that is a, a major priority for us.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah, that is so cool. I, that's that's Yeah, that's so neat. When you told me about it and when I saw the, the filling, I de- or not the filling, the, the cap, I definitely thought it was a, like, knockout surgery, you know, kind of thing. Great work. That's Thank you. Y- y- y'all should be very proud of yourselves. Thank that's you. It's very cool. Um, so are there any other animals that you want to talk about uh, at the Indianapolis Zoo?
1: Um, I do also work with the dolphins. So we have a group of Atlantic bottlenose dolphins here at the zoo and they are incredible in their own right. Um, again, they all have their own unique personalities um, we do a lot of uh, presentations and guest interactions with them. So it's great for people to get the opportunity to get up close to them and learn a lot about them. One of my favorite things about them is um, as a part of our dolphin presentation, we use that opportunity to talk with our zoo visitors about conservation. And we have specifically chosen to talk about plastics, single-use plastics, and what people can do to help reduce their reliance on single use plastics. So we have uh, we've teamed up with the Nature Conservancy and we have a lot of really cool videos that we use during the presentation to help spread awareness and share that message to really show people that it does have a big impact. And especially being here in Indianapolis, you know people think, well the oceans are like really far away. like <laughs> what can anything I do here? really impact a dolphin, like I don't understand, or a walrus for that matter. Right. Um. So being able to share stories about families in Indianapolis, what they've already chosen to do, the steps they've already taken um, to kind of provide examples for people, but also to inspire them, like these dolphins are awesome, I care so much about them, like how can I help them? well, you can go home and you can try to change these certain things about your life or you can talk to your friends and family about making these changes in your life. And um, so that's always really satisfying to me to be a part of those presentations and to right. feel like I really am making a difference.
0: Do you want to take a minute to tell us about some of the dolphins?
1: Sure. Um, we have a pretty wide variety of dolphins with a lot of different backgrounds. Um, we have some dolphins that have been here pretty much since the zoo opened in 1988. Wow. Um, and then we have, uh, quite a few dolphins that were also born here over the years. Um, we also have a dolphin that was rescued and we have a few dolphins that have come to us in recent years from Marine land in Florida. So kind of a hodgepodge, but it's come together really well to form a nice little pod or family. Um, it's really been fun watching, especially as we have some younger dolphins kind of growing up and figuring out where they fit. Into the family, dolphins are really, really social animals, Um, not unlike walrus, but uh, within their pods, they establish a hierarchy. So that's one thing that's also really cool to just observe when we're not necessarily feeding them or training them, but just to sit and watch and see how they've kind of established that hierarchy within their own pod and to see how it changes at times as the dolphins are growing. Sure.
0: And are they all um, Atlantic bottlenose? They are. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Uh any any particular individuals that you you may want to chat about for a minute? Do you have a favorite dolphin? They can't hear you through the door, I promise. <laughs> do you have a favorite dolphin?
1: I think a lot of people would say that they don't necessarily have a favorite, but I don't think it's wrong to say you do either. Um I think in a lot of ways it's like I have a lot of friends, but I have certain friends that I really just connect to right, yeah. better than others. So um so as much as we love all of them, they're they're different, just like we're different. So some of our personalities just mesh a little bit better. Um, one dolphin that I've had the pleasure of working with for my entire career here, um, who has been here for a very long time, is a female. Her name is China, And she tends to be um, the most stubborn of the group. <laughs> she likes to do things her way, um, which... I thought was a really kind of a unique, fun challenge. Like, okay, how can I find ways to let her do it her way, but also be cooperative? And um, so I worked very closely with her over the past couple of years um, on a lot of her medical type behaviors and things. And it's been really, really rewarding to see, um, you know, an animal go from a little bit standoffish to really developing that trust in you. So that's been really great working with her. But it's also just been awesome to see some of the dolphins that I literally saw being born, to now see them being, you know, pushing into their teenage adult years and finding their way in the pod and, and really growing and developing and just being, being able to be a part of that whole process is really special too. And, and Taz, our little rescue that came um, shortly after I started, to see him going from needing so much help to being, you know, accepted now into his dolphin family. So it's been really just great.
0: Very, very cool. All right. So I like to open up the floor now. Um, are there any conservation organizations you'd like to, to give props to or any message you'd like to give directly to my listeners or the floor is yours?
1: Um, I guess I just, I don't have like a specific organization per se, um, but like a facility like the Alaska Sea Life Center that has been able to do uh, many rescues and rehabilitations over the years, not just for walrus, but for a variety of seal species and tons of birds and stellar sea lions. Um, they have an incredible program there. So any kind of support, they have social media, you know, people want to kind of reach out and learn more about what they're doing. They're doing really incredible things. Um but I think also another thing that people don't realize is that zoos in general, but particularly the Indianapolis Zoo, we have um, a research committee here. And so we're really committed to doing research, to learning more about these animals. And a lot of that directly relates to conservation of those species. So one project that we were really lucky to do, um, we collaborated with um, a university on, was we actually worked with the dolphins, but also the walrus, on... Um, auditory testing. Okay. So we don't know a lot about how an animal like the walrus hears, what frequencies they can hear at, and what frequencies are perhaps damaging to their ears. So we were able to train our two previous walrus, Aurora and Puckuck, for this um, biological audiogram, basically. So it involved kind of putting, holding probes on their head and playing sounds into their ears. And it wasn't invasive, but it did require a lot of patience on their part. And um, we did it over the course of months, various different testings of all different frequencies. And what they're doing is they're looking for like a brain response to the different sounds. So that's different from a behavioral study where it would be like, okay, if you hear the sound, push the button. Right, right. Um, This is no action required on their part. We're just literally looking at their brain activity to determine whether they registered that sound or not. Very cool. So that was pretty groundbreaking, Um, not something that's really been done with walrus before. So we were really excited to be a part of that. But the coolest part of that is the information that they're able to obtain from that can directly impact wild populations. So we can say something at this frequency could be damaging and interfere with their ability to hunt or communicate or migrate or whatever the case may be. And that could help institute a policy change to help reduce maybe drilling in the Arctic or shipping routes through walrus areas or whatever the case may be. We're using science and that science is backed by research that's being done right here in Indianapolis. So we're really, really proud of that. And um, that really is, you know, one of the more important parts of my job, I think, being able to to make that connection with our public and to back up the science that is going to help these animals.
0: That's so awesome. And then, uh, you know, what's coming. It's time for the Rossafari poop story. So (laughs) let me, let me hear it.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, one of the better things about working with marine mammals, particularly dolphins and walrus is that they do all of that business in the water for the most part. Um, So there isn't usually a ton of cleanup involved. Seals and sea lions are a little bit different. Walrus have a messy day on occasion. (laughs) Um, But another thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that as a part of my job, I have to scuba dive regularly to clean. Um, So that involves cleaning everything that might be yucky in all of their pools, and we do that on a regular basis. Um, So there's definitely been a few scuba stories of just well, one that I can think of in particular back when we had a polar bear, um, not only was her pool messy, but she was also um, molting or shedding. So there was just hair everywhere in the pool. <laughs> and a coworker and I had to dive, and it was um, during our Christmas season. So we have a later shift during our Christmas season, and it gets dark so early that we were diving pretty much in the dark with just a few lights. And there was just so much hair and poop and everything it was disgusting we could not get in the shower quick enough after that dive (laughs) so so yeah mostly we stay clean but sometimes diving gets a little messy
0: that's fair very cool all right y'all well i hope you enjoyed that the second time as much as i did the first time the second time and every time that i listened to it Eric is awesome. The walruses were incredible, or the walrus were incredible. I still struggle with pluralizing it like that. Eh, Whatever. Anyway, the Indianapolis Zoo is always an amazing place to go, and they treat me so well. And I'm so thankful that they just exist and support the pod, and it's all wonderful. And life is good, my friends. Life is good, especially this Walrus Awareness Week. You can check out the Indianapolis Zoo by going to IndianapolisZoo.org or on social media at Indianapolis Zoo. And I want to say a special note of thanks to my Red Panda-level patron, Laura Shank. Uh, and hey friends, quick reminder, Walrus Awareness Week backwards is Q Senarawa Sirlaw. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.